Organizing, I don't think, is about these like guru leaders or always being right or always being a winner. Organizing is just about accepting that things are changing all the time. There's so much need and lack. And also there's so much that we can do together. There's so many different gifts, so many different skills, so many different perspectives. As much as there is of all the bad, there is all the good. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Since the beginning of humanity, evolution and progress has come about due to like-minded people working together to push ideas and actions forward in society. Unions and labor movements, getting out the vote, Food drives, civil rights advocacy, these are all examples of organizing. Bringing together people who share common concerns or struggles so that it gains widespread notoriety, enough to create real change. When we see policy brought to the Senate floor, changes made in our workplace, or thousands of people marching for a cause, all of these things require a network of people, organizers, doing the work on the ground to make these things a reality. Today's conversation will shed light on the critical role and the human connections of organizing, with great insights for folks who want to be involved in this work or for those who have been in it for years. We'll be speaking specifically on organizing around environmental justice, something that if you're a human, connects to you in some way. Environmental justice includes access to healthy food, transportation, safe air, water, and homes. People of all races experience environmental injustices, but in America and many other countries, really, it is communities of color that have bore the brunt of this for generations. Highways, factories, pipelines, and other polluting entities have historically, and still to this day, been zoned disproportionately through BIPOC lands and neighborhoods. But those communities have not been silent, though the stories of their involvement in activism has been largely left out of the mainstream history of environmental justice. And it is thanks to the work of organizers that the voices of those communities were amplified. It's now up to the rest of us to listen and to stand up for a better way forward. Tiana Arredondo has been active in organizing for environmental justice since they were a child. Their organizing has ranged from the local community level to international, with groups such as PowerShift Network and Sustain Us, where Tiana was a delegate for the UN climate negotiations in 2018. Tiana is currently a national organizer for environmental justice at 350, an organization dedicated to advancing a clean energy future for all. Tiana's role entails supporting local climate advocacy leaders around the country while helping to create a BIPOC-led climate justice narrative in these spaces. Tiana shares their story with us, speaking about what brought them to environmental justice organizing, the power of sharing stories and human connection, and advice for others in the climate justice space, whether you're looking for how to become involved or are already leaders within your communities. I've lived between Ohlone and Yokut territory, which is so-called Fresno, California and Santa Cruz, California. I started in Santa Cruz as a kid up until I was like seven or eight-ish. We didn't really lock our doors at night. And we could eat food from the sidewalk. Like it was an apartment complex, you know what I mean? Like it's nothing spectacular. It's just my parents both worked and we were technically poor people. Growing up in Santa Cruz, there wasn't as much as a wealth delineation. You know, also in like a school there where everybody looks different. 
I just remember being a little kid and just feeling free and feeling really grateful to be able to be outside a lot and to learn from lots of different people from different religions and different relationship styles. And then uh, my father was terminally ill and moved to Fresno so that he could die with his grandparents. And essentially, he was poisoned by radioactive poisoning from a warehouse he's working in. He passed away when I was 10. So coming to Fresno was a huge shift. And I was like, oh, this is horrible. I can't play outside because we can't breathe the air. Like, what is this? Like, I had no context. And race, everyone, like, everybody's racist all of a sudden. <laughs> like, in, in Santa Cruz, of course, there was still racism, but it was more... It's a different flavor. You know what I mean? People would ask my mother, who's a white woman, like, is this your child? Because I'm obviously black and Mexican. But in Fresno, it was very different, like slurs all the time. And teachers were prejudiced and pastors were prejudiced. It's just like Mm. it was I just was like, what is happening? This is horrible. So when my father passed away, you know, that's my my black Mexican (laughs) heritage just gone. I was kind of left and and I just always felt very behind and very ostracized and very weird. Because I was, I had to figure out my own identity in a lot of ways because of the ways that I was in the world and the ways, the spaces I was in. So all that to say, just a little context, like that was a lot of what pushed me into environmental justice organizing. Ultimately, my experiences in, in faith ministry, in our faith ministry, not seeing a lot of black and brown people taken seriously, respected or honored. Knowing that my father, a black and Mexican man, when he was poisoned and we had to watch him die very slowly over eight years, the, the response from the company was like, well, he wasn't that productive society anyways. Uh, I remember as a little kid being shocked. Like I remember being literally like 12 or 13 and being in court and listening to them explain that he wasn't really that useful to society. He wasn't really that good of a father. That was what shook me. I was like, you mean to tell me that this whole man is dead? And there were also many other employees that were passing away immediately. And some of them are still alive today suffering. I'm like, you just smashed someone's entire universe. Someone's parent and spouse is gone. Someone's son. And it's just, it was wild. I was like, this is absolutely wild. And that for me was like, what are we going to do about this? So yeah, my mother also was a union organizer for her nursing union at um, SEIU 250. So I, I basically grew up knowing if we want something, we're going to have to fight for it because I didn't come from money. And I knew that that's just not an option. It's like, if you wanted to do a sport, you better go fundraise so you can get your gear. Like if you don't want to be treated like crap and dehumanized, you probably gonna have to get people and get signs and then take it to court. So that's, that's what brought me to this work. And ironically, what happened was I actually, my mom made sure I went to like a specific school and it was predominantly white, really rich kids. I got bust in and I basically learned white culture and I learned a lot about privilege and opportunity from this space. And so from that purview, I'm like, wow, anything's possible. I could try all these things and research all these things and do all these things. And I would get my foot in the door into the spaces and then I would be pushed out or I would be told I'm not a good fit or it just wouldn't work. And so that also is what led me back to environmental justice because I tried everything. Like I tried to, I tried to talk white and I tried to like dress in a certain way and act in a certain way. And I tried to do everything I could to not get in trouble, not be weird, not be socially unacceptable. And it always led back to something new. Well, your hair is too big. Well, maybe you could just not speak so much in public space when we're in meeting. Right. So I also was like, this is weird. Like I'm saving every penny and I'm still not building wealth. Like I'm overworking for experience and I still can't get any, like I can't get the opportunities I want. Yeah, I had really amazing mentors and leadership at a policy institute and at a church. And 
in many spaces I was in and I was reminded a lot, you are not the problem. Your poverty is not the problem. Your skin is not the problem. Like the system is the problem. Do not internalize this, this shame, guilt, and hate and think that in any way this is your fault. And that is what led me to EJ work because I was really, uh, really positively obsessed with how are people okay with this? Like, how do people go to sleep at night knowing this is how the world is? So those are all my motivations. Just want to provide the nuance because it's really not a simple, <laughs> simple response. No, absolutely. And I don't know, it says something that even you yourself as a child felt that shock of experiencing that racism firsthand, you know, and then for white folks such as myself who have spent their whole lives removed from that reality and who often may not even be aware of how those things show up for so many people in daily life. But I wonder if there are some things that are so baked in that for those who are not directly experiencing the problem that when they do learn about it, their shock doesn't always turn into action like it did for you. You know, sometimes that shock turns into denial or turning a blind eye. And in doing that, continuing these forms of oppressing what's really going on. Yeah. And I think that there's different thresholds for shock and action we all hold. For me, I know that I still wake up every day and I'm like, am I doing enough? Is it okay if I get this oil for my face that's not necessary because I could donate this money, I could put it somewhere else? Is it okay for me to just be in love and like us not to talk about our ministry or our work when we're hanging out? I think that there's a thing happening in everyone's body where like we're trying to push ourselves, but like that feeling is what holds us back. That's what my, my work is interested in now. For my folks, for like people who look like me, queer folks, black, brown, chronically ill, dealing with chronic pain, how can we cultivate more grace for ourselves, more compassion for ourselves, and more patience with ourselves? And equally, while I'm doing this work, especially working at like a giant NGO, how can I also take up space and try to push back within these systems to be like, yo, this ain't gonna fly. Like we need to think about what's being said here. And it's scary, right? Because it's like, I want my job. I want to be fiscally taken care of. And how else are we going to have change if we're not trying to push the needle a little bit every every opportunity we get? So, Absolutely. And, and your approach to organizing specifically seems to really look at the creative approach and look to human connection and storytelling around organizing and around community building and organizing work. Can you share a little bit about how you arrived that this role is the one that fits for you? Yeah, I have worked since I was like 11 or 12, cleaning houses, taking care of kids, doing whatever I could to like earn extra funds for my household because after my father passed away, my mother struggled with addiction and the second half of my childhood was like that. So like, and I had a lot of friends, we were all doing the same thing. So it's not rare. There are a lot of little adult children trying to support their families. And so my first, my first take was like service and labor. And then it was like, okay, I'm going to go work retail. And when I was working retail, I, I was getting promoted very fast. And it, and it had to do with the fact that I knew how to connect with people in sales. So mm. I was, I was like, yeah, isn't it wild? Like, I just know what people want and then they get it. Like, this is so fun. But <laughs> once I got promoted, I was like, you mean to tell me that because someone doesn't get credit cards in the middle of a recession, you want me to fire them? seriously and wow. I remember my boss is being like what do you why is this hard for you to grasp and I was like why is this hard for you to grasp like <laughs> right. we got we to gotta, 
we got an introvert over here. We have someone who has four kids. One has a health condition and they're like, paycheck to paycheck. That You don't pay these people enough to support them to do what you want. So mm. that organization, it's a Fortune 500 company. They were working to do all these diversity initiatives. And that's where I got my first taste of how to train and how to lead. So that led me to then have a career in tech. And I went to work at the university, Fresno State, that I was at. And that was where I ended up doing a technology program where we made a, th- a three-facing program for faculty, staff, and students. And we were able to help them to do what they wanted, not what we wanted, but just anything they needed. That for me was, I was originally a political science major and I was told by the dean, like people like you don't do good in this degree. Like I went to his office and that's what I was told. So I had just had all these cumulative experiences of like, okay, service labor, I can't do enough to become wealthy and support my family. Retail, if you have a bad day, it could ruin how many hours you get. That let me do higher education. But then I was realizing after these skills are embodied, there's not really a pipeline to get people to the next step. And so I started working at a community organization and just working with many different communities all over Fresno and actually learning what it looks like day to day to like live in so many different predicaments. That's when I was like, it's organizing for me. This is, this is it. I'm like, this makes the most sense to meet people where they're at, understand what they need, getting plugged into a network that can support, getting plugged into a cause or into an initiative or into a program. I was realizing organizing allows a spaciousness to create programs and things that meet the needs of everyone involved. That was the lie I was told in many of my previous jobs that like we just can't meet everybody's needs. I think organizing was my pivot and choice because that's where I was like, I'm going to share everything I've learned to support anyone coming up underneath me because this is hard. Like I'm losing my hair in my 20s hard. I don't know how to pay my bills hard. It is exhausting to be a black, brown, queer, non-white person and show up to then give more labor to get less pay. So that for me was why I went to organizing and it just made sense. This is a space where we can actually share stories and shift the paradigms we're carrying in our heads because that I think is the most important thing. And that's where I'm invested in working. So yeah, that's that's my short story long and how I came into organizing. Yeah, thank you for that. And what did that, at least at the beginning, I know you've worked directly through different organizations. For those who might not know, you know, what the physical act of organizing entails, what did that look like on the ground? Yeah, it doesn't really change. And that's kind of the hilarious, beautiful Mm. thing about it. The earliest days of organizing, it was holding up signs. It was going door to door and just talking with people and helping them to become aware of what's going on. There's all kinds of different ways, class action suits, working with city councils, working with school boards, working within diversity councils and panels. It's a lot of sitting and listening and trying to understand what are these people feeling? What do they need to be who they want to be? And what is stopping them? And what can we align on? What do we have in common? Because that's the biggest lie, I think, in society is that we don't have much in common or that we're very Mm. separate when we're really not. So it's a lot of listening for me, deep listening, not I'm listening to respond or I have a point to teach. Mm-hmm. I think like in my earlier organizing days when I was doing like faith organizing, I was all up in the Christian church, just like, y'all are racist. <laughs> this is despicable. And I had to realize, oh, these white folks are actually pushing themselves so hard to understand racism and they just can't. Huh. So I had to realize like, what can we bond over? Food. 
okay, how do we have events that are not some weird proof of white wokeness? How do we actually just cut it up and begin to understand one another? And how do we make our needs known and communicate in ways that are helpful? And it doesn't always end up rosy. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that just stop. Organizing isn't always a win. Some fights take a decade and longer. Some systems we're still we're still pushing, like we're still trying, right? All systems, anyone who's organizing, that's what we're doing. We take we take on the work of those who came before us, of those who are still with us, of those who might not be able. Like we're all together in what we're doing. So yeah, I think organizing is just a lot of deep listening and it's responsiveness in a way that it's gonna cause you to change. Like be clear if you're trying to organize and you're like, I'm gonna change the world. It's like you better be ready to change yourself. For myself, at least, to be in an authentic relationship, I have had to change the ways I show up. I've had to admit, I'm sorry that I hurt you. That was not my intention, but I need you to explain to me all the ways I hurt you so I can really understand what's happening because like, I don't even get it. So yeah, ability to be adaptable and changeable and to be wrong. Like If you're trying to be right, just quit while you're ahead. It's exhausting to be right. And I think it's not to say give up on what you believe in. It's just how can you actually connect with a human so that when you're expressing where you're coming from, they can absorb it and listen. And how can you know the line of where you're going to stop? Because you can't convince everybody that your perspective is correct. You can't bring everybody into the movement. You can't bring everybody into your vision. And, and lastly, alignment. Theories of change have to align. How do you clearly communicate? I see this happening. I'm not okay with it. This is the impact. I believe if we do this together, we can achieve this thing. Organizing, I don't think, is about these like guru leaders or always being right or always being a winner. Organizing is just about accepting that things are changing all the time. There's so much corruption. There's so many problems. There's so much need and lack. And also there's so much that we can do together. So there's so many different gifts, so many different skills, so many different perspectives. How can you as an organizer take all of that in and be grateful and also make space for grief and tension and conflict because mm. as much as there is of all the bad there is all the good <laughs> you know I mean that applies to so many things right in our society and and where the real need is um that that the root cause of a lot of so much conflict is that you know the lack of listening the lack of admitting error going into something with the goal of being right you know this seems like simple concepts but it's so deeply embedded and so it really mm -hmm. is work to to dig into that and to flip it around. And a lot of this is also, you know, bringing to the forefront the importance of community-led action and the voice of a community to be the ones to make the decisions on a place. You know, for generations, there's been that fight to elevate the voice of the people and the needs of the people and community-led action. You know, what, what are approaches that you've seen or been directly involved in that we just need more of for that motion to accelerate as far as that shift of bottom up. Yeah, I think that when it comes to what campaigning works and this idea of bottom up and what is successful and what is best. I mean, I spend a lot of my time in my current role in fossil fuel battles in local communities. Mm. So I think of the campaigns where an entire local group at 350 is focusing on shutting out a local gas station or stopping formaldehyde fracking. I think about how in those efforts, people just come together and they will just not stop showing up at meetings. So like, no, we're not allowing you to do this to our community. Um, so I think about that solidarity and that attention to detail of how you show up. I think about right now, we're working towards a very large week of action. I have a lot of joy when I leave these calls and I see 
how much collaboration is happening and it's very powerful. It's a mixture of local groups, um, indigenous leaders and national organizations. And we are going to try and stick together for a very long time, longer than usual for a coalition and see how long we can continue to be aligned around things. And so I think about stuff like that. How does how does the climate movement show up for Black lives? Also around DAPLE and Line 3, how are we showing up for union workers of just transition and laborers, right? So mm-hmm. I think about all of these differences and different ways to show up and work together. And it involves a lot of like hard conversations and tension and weirdness. And so that's what I think about when I think about successful efforts and groups coming together. And what have you seen or experienced that really creates momentum for this type of work to move forward? I think connection, like it's very, Mm. it's very, very rudimentary. Before the lockdown, we would eat together. We would have whole meals together. We would have fires together. We would fundraise together, paint together, build things together. I think it's what I see as successful is like spending the time to be together because then we're not talking about understanding each other. We're not thinking about if this can work, we're just doing the thing and we're learning as we go. And with COVID, like ways I've implemented that in my own little world and bubble at work is facilitating one-on-one. So if someone wants to like connect with somebody, I'm like, great, add your name to the spreadsheet. I'll drop two people here. And then you are both accountable to checking in on each other and being that facilitator of connection. Cause it's not easy for some folks to build relationship or connect. Also hosting like community space to like learn skills together the Climate League was a program myself and my co- my comrade coworker Dominique came up with at 350. And we also hired in friends and other leaders to come and share their skills around what they're making and what they're doing. That was really important to us to offer even more spaciousness to cultivate our skills beyond our trauma, beyond our limitation of how we know to use them. Because being Black and Brown and, or any person of color, right, and any non-white person, There's so much of you that has to die or be silenced or you have to cope with on your own or figure out on your own that sometimes you don't get to show up as your best self because there's so much of yourself you're compartmentalizing. How do we show up in space and just vent about that? It's not ours to carry and we do need to be together. So like creating togetherness, especially in this work, if you get really, really, really plugged in, like I learned this the hard way. There were years where I was just like, go, 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 go. And I was like, wait, I haven't rested now. I'm burnt out. And I have to reconnect with everyone I love because I got so obsessed with this concept of justice I'm chasing after because how angry I am. But a tactic that I have been pivoting to is like, what does it look like to pause and to be together while we're pushing through this and to like recognize what we're doing and how much we're doing and how resilient we are and how soft we are and to like breathe and like, Hmm. chill like we're not perfect we don't mess up we need our people let's just take a moment <laughs> just step back or like not go online for a couple of days if we can take let's let's try to shift things so yeah those are some tactics and things I've been em- employing and using and especially with COVID people just want to talk they're like hmm. I'm tired of agendas I'm zoomed out yeah like every I can't touch anyone I love I can't hang out with people I'm locked up in this house life is hard. I don't know if I have a job or not. Like it's real. People just need connection and food and shelter. And so those are some, some tactics. It shows you that human connection, right. And, and that really, when you, when you pull it all back, like that's what you're getting to with all of your work. And yeah, sorry, I'm way too excited. Continue. I'm like, yes. Cause like, that is what I'm here to do. Like Essentially, yeah. I've had to come to terms. It's funny because I left the church, right? I left Christianity. Like, I'm not doing ministry. I care about actual people. <laughs> and my best friend and like sibling is a literal teacher. And my partner is 
irreverent. Like I'm around people who have admitted to themselves like they are a spiritual and emotional care practitioner. And I'm over here like I'm an organizer. Like I don't believe in the system. Like I'm going to make change. But like at the end of the day, I'm just out here trying to like tend to souls and share what I learn and be an honest, confused human with other honest, confused humans. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so, yeah. A lot of my work is just transformative. It it is uh, transformative. Like that. That's not an exaggeration. It is transformative, and it's it's something that we really need to recognize the power in that role, um, and the power in vulnerability, right? And and the strength in that for all yes. of us, whether we're listening or or sharing our story on either side of it. And yeah. you had spoken earlier about you know your interest and the importance of intergenerational leadership. Do you mind speaking a little to that as far as? You know, if it's a specific yeah. example that, that you've seen where it's just like, ah, yes, this is why intergenerational organizing is so critical or just more general of, you know, it would benefit folks to keep that concept in mind. I mean, I could use two prime examples a couple years ago after the Global Climate Action Summit and that fellowship, I was asked to go and report to a, a, a grantee or someone that holds funds to how we use the funds, like how us youth use the funds. At the time, I'm 24. I'm like, okay, I'll go. But could not have expected what I walked into. I was the youngest person there. And the oldest person there was like in their 60s. And it was the most beautiful experience in my life. Like I met some elders that I am still very close to and talk to very often. And they were just like, you have to keep doing what you're doing. Like, come if you need anything. Like, let's talk more. So I'm like, oh, okay. Are we friends? Are you my mentor? Like, what does this mean? And what it's looked like mm-hmm. is having very deep, honest friendship and kinship and like staying connected. It's a very weird adult morphing of relationship. Because of course, I was in my early 20s when I started connecting with elders constantly in this way, in this framework. And I was like, oh, wait. So even though I can't come to your house and like help you clean something or I can't, Um, cook with you or you can't come meet my friends we're just going to hop on the phone or we're just going to meet up in a city we're just going to do this great and so that's what it consisted of building into these relationships zoom forward you know this has been oh my gosh almost four years since I've met some of these amazing elders more recently like I'm working on a land project with friends and like we're having a lot of tension around COVID protocols and I have pretty specific views and regulations and protocols I'd like to see four BIPOC humans that we're bringing to land. And I called one of my elders just bawling and upset because I'm like, how, how do you bridge? How do you bridge worlds? How Mm. did you do any of this? So I called two elders, one a a black elder who has a farm in the South and the other an indigenous today, amazing leader and woman. And, and they both were just like, this is the work. Like, this is it. Mm. Like you're doing it, you know, find other things to make you happy in the meantime, set healthy boundaries, assess what you think could happen and what is happening. And And trust yourself, you know, those relationships are what keep me grounded because peers my own age, we can't see the long game sometimes, you know what I mean? Like we just can't, you you can't because we have our visions, but like, how do we have that accountability for what is actually real and what is actually true? So I think about elder relationships and intergenerational relationships on that end. And then, of course, on the opposite end of things, talking about the interpersonal, like I had a conversation with an elder last night about perimenopause and like what that will be like. And I am, you know, two decades away from that. But just being able to talk and sh- and hear and witness what my elder was going through, I was like, wow, you're scared. It's OK to be scared. Remember, like, it's OK. You tell me that. 
So it's very interesting to have that dynamic where it's not just like me sitting at someone's feet begging for their mercy and wisdom and like approval. It's sometimes, you know, elders call also. It's just there's so much nuance and there's so much to learn in both directions. You know, lastly, I feel like I have to mention Adrian Marie Brown. I was invited to a facilitator training where Adrian was sharing, uh, we will not cancel us and walking us through a lot. And they were so clear. They were just like, you have to create your own boundaries, your own definitions and your own accountability in your communities and treat everything like you would like the most precious things to you. If you're working in an organization, it's not going well, take a six month breakup. You know, like if you're really messing up, admit you're messing up and ask for support and ask for help. Don't try to like do it all and think you have it all together. I think sitting literally in front of Adrian, my young self was like, I thought Adrian don't mess up. I thought Adrian has so much accountability. <laughs> That's why Adrian writes the books. But like, <laughs> if you read We Will Not Cancel Us or you read Pleasure Activism, like, or just read their posts, I think that's for me like a really beautiful touch point on their podcast, Octavia's Parables. On one of the episodes, uh, Adrian was saying, Yeah, you don't know who you're going to end up in the apocalypse with. And something that has been ingrained in me from a young age is like, how do I think about how I treat others? Like I want others to treat me the way I treat them. And that also is limiting because like I'm not the most graceful person, but I didn't grow up with a lot of grace. Like if I mess up, that could be a, be a big thing. Like that could be mm-hmm. income for my family or that could be missed, like losing out on an opportunity that would change my life. Sometimes I think about that too. Like intergenerational relationship allows there to be a give and take. My elders give me grace, but they are hard on themselves. Adrian is also mentioning how there's something about getting older that you're expected to become more conservative and like more docile and like more caring and doting and like less radical and less intense. And I think that I see that and I know for a fact it's not true because of my intergenerational relationships. Yeah. And just that reciprocity, right? That it's reciprocal. Mm-hmm. How important that is. Yeah. It takes a lot of vulnerability and it takes a lot mm. of time to figure out. Like I'm still learning about reciprocity every day. It takes a lot of time and we're all learning at different paces and takes a lot of grace and a lot of love, which I think is seeing, seeing the truth of things and still showing up. Yeah. That's uh, such important things for everybody to hear, you know, on so many different levels of what you said. Thank you for that. Since you are, you know, front lines, front row of um, environmental justice work, have you seen a shift in the national narrative around environmental and climate justice, either since you began or where you kind of see shifts happening as far as in a hopefully positive direction or things that are now more publicly talked about that you used to have to work really hard to inform people that this was even a problem, you know? This is a great question and I want to frame it in a very particular way. I don't know that this stuff gets to be positive and feel good. So like prior to working at 350, I was just like a grassroots organizer. I came from that space into this national space. And so I don't know that it's like a positive shift because I think saying it's a positive shift takes away from the nuance of everybody who's working to make the shift. And I mm-hmm. think that work inherently is not positive a lot of the times. It's a lot of over-explaining. It's a lot of redirecting. It's a lot of trying to hold integrity. It's a lot of trying to hold space, trying to make sure needs are met and like people are being advocated for and To me, I would say like, yes, I see a lot of positive shifts right now around like solidarity. I think last summer, the summer of Black Death was what sparked it from my perspective and where I'm at in my organization with all the folks that I organize with. 
to be going through the pandemic and unable to like be with other black people when I was constantly seeing so much black debt and I didn't know how to cope and to come to work. And they're like, let's talk about how we're celebrating black people. And like, let's have Mm. the black people organize a black event. And we all had to be like, we don't even want to come to work. We're tired. Like there were a lot of, there were a lot of hard conversations around where is climate in this conversation? Where are resources going? Like how are we actually moving our base, which is predominantly white to like help black bodies. So it really internally at 350, we had to like do that labor as black folks. And there's a lot of good that's come from it. And also it has been positive change. And also it's been really hard on our bodies and our minds and our souls. And I think also externally, we have in multiple coalitions I'm a part of, there were really beautiful, powerful task force put together that had mutual aid pushes and just connecting to anybody we could to get whatever we could to other folks. There were a lot of good things that came from, from the tension. I'm seeing the shifts. I'm seeing it all shifting. And I think as positive as it is, there's also a skeptic in me that's like, is this real or is this going to be people saying the thing and not doing it? Because that's been my hardest Mm -hmm. learning is like hearing someone say values and use the words and being like, okay, great, let's do it. And then realizing like, damn, I betrayed myself because I I believe this person's words, but like their actions didn't follow suit and now I'm stuck in this weird position. I got to get out of. So I think narrative shifts are good but are they followed with accountability and is there metrics and ways to say this is actually happening versus just having a certain amount of black or brown or queer bodies on staff i think that there's new tactics and new accountabilities being used and new visibility that can't be escaped yes things are shifting yes in in some in some ways a positive way and i also am still here being like doing what i can to be like what can we do to like make this easier on our bodies as black, brown, queer, indigenous folks, because like it's really tiring. We got to keep going, but there has to be a way that we can do it in like a healthier, more nourishing way. I don't know if it's positive. I think it's transformative. <laughs> I think it's evolution. I think it's adapting. Because I know you mentioned bottom up, right? Community-based leadership, and I think that one of the things that really has to change in order for these these patterns to change is like how can black and brown people be seen as inherently valuable from the experiences we carry versus certain credentials or have certain papers to represent who they are how do we value their experience beyond oh all that trauma we're going to fight for them how do we also look at them and trust like they have solutions and they have answers and that should be compensated and seen as valuable yeah and and value because of that human experience not in spite of that human experience exactly exactly not like oh they need help but like yeah i wonder what they do know from juggling all of these things and showing up in all of these ways and how i can actually support their life thank you so much to tiana for sharing your stories and insight with us today You can get in touch with Tiana to connect about environmental justice work, organizing, or the inner transformative work that this entails through email at tiana.aradondo at 350.org. That email is listed in today's show notes. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to share these episodes with others and to subscribe to hear more inspiring action to help you find your role in a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.